Well, I'm here again, and for those of you that didn't know I was going to be preaching, I guess like the old college, if you don't belong here, or if you need to leave, I, told, I ran into Greg yesterday and told him we are going to be here. I guess I didn't tell him we'd be preaching. I was wondering if he was going to make it, but <laughs> Brian's preaching. Don't we have something to do today? No. <laughs> but uh, actually, last week, I wasn't sure if I was going to get a chance to, to preach again, and... Um, after the message last week, if you remember, we preached on the, uh, the concept of preservation of the saints or eternal security. It's a wonderful doctrine. It brings a lot of comfort and encouragement, at least to me it does. And um, after the sermon, I was talking and Nancy said, so do we get part two? And I said, well, that's up to Pastor Lindsay. We'll see. Um, I got to thinking about that. And, and her reasoning was this. She said, you know, if a person is saved... We know that they are saved. But what about, you know, when I was speaking on eternal security and preservation of the saints, I said a lot of times we use experience, and it can kind of throw us when we're, when we're looking at that doctrine. It kind of throws us off, and experience being people around us, or, or others that, that appear to be saved or claim to be saved and aren't walking with God at all, or um, somebody that, that says, yes, I was a believer, but now I'm not. They even say, I've walked away. And we deal with those kind of situations and we say, what do you do with that? And so really, if you remember, go to 1 John 5.13 and we'll just read again the verse that we used last week. And there's, there's another really facet or angle on this verse. It says, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. And we spoke about so that you can know that you have it. If you have it, it can't be taken away. It's not going to go away and you won't give it up. But as well, he also wrote these, this book and, the, and these doctrines and these things so that we can know that we even do have it. In other words, last week we, we talked about and taught on what does the Bible say about once you are saved, can it ever go away? And we came to the conclusion... Uh, I believe that through the Bible that it can't. But another aspect is this, is how can I know that I know that I know that I know that I am saved? You know, that's, that's kind of a, a really a precursor. Maybe when we put these on a podcast, we should flip them back. Maybe I got them backwards, but God knows what He's doing. A, a precursor to that may be, am I even saved? Right? How do I know that I am saved? And I got to thinking about this message, and a lot of times when we think about this, we want to put it on others. We want to say, how do I know that they're saved? And, you know, that's okay, but really I think this, this message, I know, this message, and even in John, it's really written to you, to provide you assurance, calmness. But most of all, I got to thinking about the message and saying, what would this do to me to know that I am saved? To be assured of it. It really brings joy. If you think about the Christian and the Christian life, joy is a word that really sums up being a Christian. You can go through the, the hardest of days and still have that peace that passes all understanding, right? We can have anything come our way and still be full of joy, right? I want to read something that kind of helps us maybe understand that. And Psalms chapter 32 Let's go there. I'm going to use this again later, but I thought it was a great passage to read to start this out. And this is a psalm written by David, 
in the midst of a transgression, says this, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old, though my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer, Selah. I acknowledged my son unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin, Selah. For this shall every one that is godly pray unto thee any time when thou mayest be found. Surely in the floods of great waters they shall not come nigh unto him. Thou art my hiding place, thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance, Selah. I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. Be ye not as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held and with bit and bridle, lest they come near unto thee. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked. But he that trusteth in the Lord, mercy shall come past him about. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice ye righteous, and shout for joy, all ye that are upright in the heart. This is a psalm of a guy that knew he had sinned. He knew he had done wrong. He knew that he deserved to be destroyed by God. But he knew something else. Says David was a man after God's own heart. What did he know? He knew that God would forgive his people. He knew that he was forgiven. He knew that he was, he was a repentant man. He came to God and what did he say? If God forgives us, and if we are forgiven by God, it produces this joy that you can't even imagine. It's, you talk, go talk to somebody that is, you know is saved, and they know they're saved. And uh, Pastor Lindsay said it a few times when he's describing an individual. We'll be talking about him. He says, yeah, I met this so-and-so. I got to talking to them. And, uh, man, he's just one of those people that just hasn't got over their salvation. That should describe everybody that's a Christian, right? Amen. And what does he mean by that? He means it's, they're just... They're in amazement that God has forgiven them. Amen. They stand in awe in the fact that you, you to talk to them, and it's almost like they're looking at you just wanting to grab a hold of you and saying, no, you don't understand. I was going to be destroyed and go to hell, and I'm not. And you look at them and say, yeah, but, you know, you got this going on and this going on, and, and what about this? And, you know, you're not always perfect. You've got some things wrong in your life that I've noticed. It's like, yeah, but you don't get it. I'm not going to go to hell. I get to go to heaven and be with God forever, not based on me, not based on my circumstances. When I die, the moment that my life ends, I'm with God, and He's going to look at me, and He's going to say, forgiven, perfect, holy, pure. This is all yours for eternity. Amen. Think about that. Think about the joy that that brings. And we don't have to die and stand before God to be that confident, to be so confident that we say, yes, I'm in. We can have the exact confidence that a person would have that dies. You know, you hear people say at a funeral, "Well, he knows for sure now." You know, he know. You don't have to be there. You can have the same assurance of a person that has already died and been before God, and, and his sentence has been innocent, forgiven. 
You can have that same assurance today. Amen. And if you think about that, picture for yourself, just picture for a second what it must feel like to enter into heaven, to stand before God, before His judgment, and have the Holy God look at you and know without a doubt that He sees everything that you've ever done. He knows every sin. You're standing there naked before Him is the way it describes it. And you know, oh man, I'm in big trouble. And He says, your sins are forgiven. Come in. Picture that. How would that feel? Whoa. I picture myself, everybody's going to react differently, I'm sure. There's some people who are probably just going to fall over and just, oh, and just weep and wail and just because they're so relieved. I just can I feel like I can just picture myself just running around, bouncing and flipping and doing cartwheels. It's just like, this is amazing. I don't know how I'll respond. That's kind of the feeling I get when you just kind of picture it. We can have that same assurance, that same joy right now. Amen. Think about what David said. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and whose spirit there is no guile. Blessed is that man. You know, in, in this world, I was uh, actually listening to a sermon. When I, when I kind of study and things, I like to go listen to other people, what they have to say, read some commentaries. And this guy went down and he said, hey, you know what? Through the Bible, there's really two categories of people, two categories all through the Bible. And he started listing some of them. And it was really interesting just to hear him bring the light. He said, there was two thieves by Jesus, right? There was a one that went to paradise and one that didn't. There were two men went into the temple to pray. One went away righteous, justified, and one didn't. Jacob and Esau, there's two, came out of the same mother. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. When God chose his people out, he made two groups of people, the Jews and the Gentiles. In Matthew 12, 30, he says there's those that are with God and those that are against me. He says, if you're with me, you're for me. If you're not with me, you are against me. There's no middle ground. There's the children of God. If you go to uh, in 1 John chapter 3, if you're already over there, you can look. 3.10 it says, there's the children of God and there's the children of the devil. You know, a lot of times when people get to thinking about their lives and examining their lives, you'll talk to somebody, share the gospel with somebody, and you'll hear a lot of people say, they're kind of in that middle ground. I hope I go to heaven, not really sure, kind of, I'm serving God sometimes, living for Him, I really hope I get there. But in reality, when you look at the Bible, God makes a clear division. There's one or the other. And the only one that can truly have that joy, that peace that we're talking about, is the one that God says, you've been declared righteous. There's no middle ground. There's no third category in God's eyes. We may have them. We may look around and say, man, that guy, he's all right. He, he's a diligent man. He's really nice to me. He works hard, takes care of his kids, comes to church, tithes. But in God's eyes, is he forgiven? That's all, that's all God sees. It's not, a, it's not a, here's a saved guy. Here's a, definitely, boy, he's like a Hitler. He's a terrible, just bad guy. And then there's this middle ground who he's pretty good, but we're not really sure. Because we see how people behave, right? God sees to the heart of a man. And he knows if that person has repented and put their faith in him. That's what separates a person. Go to John 3.16. It's a verse we all know. 
But there, this passage here makes this uh, these two categories very evident. Start at verse 15 and we'll read on. We'll go down from 3.16 down to 21. It says, That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For every one that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. You read down through that, go look again sometime in just your personal study and mark out the two categories. They're so evident when you read through that passage. You have those that are going to perish into, into everlasting punishment and you have those that have everlasting life with the Father. You have those that trust in Jesus and those that don't. You have those that are condemned and those that are not condemned. And you have those who love the light and those that love the darkness. The categories that we have all through the Bible are these people that are saved trusting God, they're born again, and those that don't, they don't. And so, knowing that, we have those two categories. We need to be certain, absolutely certain, which category we are in. This isn't something that we can play around with. And you think, we're sitting in church on Sunday morning, why should we preach a message like this? You would think, well, aren't we all saved we're here right some of you have been brought up in a christian home some of you younger children in here you've been taught the bible since you were young you learned how to sing jesus loves me was probably the first song you ever sang you've been at church all the time you could you can quote scriptures but have you been born again that's a big question i'll never forget when i was early early saved there was a guy he was a piano evangelist you'd go around i guess some, this was really odd to me when I got saved. I realized in Christianity there's a lot of things that aren't the same as the world. There's these people that go around playing piano in churches and singing, and that's their life. They share the gospel through that. It was kind of neat. But he had, here's his testimony. He was in a gospel group, and they were touring around doing evangelism. That was the goal of their thing. They would sing music, sing songs. Share the gospel, people get saved. He said he's in the middle of a song playing a piano, you know, playing, and God just convicted him that he wasn't saved. I, and he, his testimony is kind of interesting to hear. You know, he's playing the piano, and you must be really good because you can have these thoughts in your mind while you're playing the piano. Is he's talking? I know I'm saved. I'm here sharing the gospel, playing it. Look at me. Look at how great I am. Look at what I'm doing. And God says no, and he said it cut him so deep to the heart he realized at that moment. He had been just living the Christian life and he wasn't saved. In the middle of his own evangelistic concert, he said that song ended. They made a test, a call for people to come down. And he was like, he said, I'm down there praying. God save me. Imagine that. 
After, I, the reason I, I tell that story is that impacted me so greatly in my Christian walk that I never again will I ever assume somebody's saved. I never will. Always give them the opportunity to share the gospel. I guarantee you there are more than one person sitting in this room. If God came back, you wouldn't go to heaven. I, I guarantee it. Just the odds. That's scary. The Bible talks about what? A narrow way. A straight, ga- a straight gate that leads to heaven. It says, wide is the path that leads to destruction. We need to know this. And it's important that we evaluate it ourselves. Because there's only two people in the whole of the universe that know whether or not you are going to heaven or hell. You and God. And you can know that for sure. You know if you've repented. You know if you've put your faith in God. I don't. I can look at you and make some observations, but you know, and God knows. And so John writes this book, and he, and he ends it here, and he says, I want you to be sure. Let's say, for example, you're in a church. You're like that piano player guy. You've been, you've been going to church. You've been living the life. You, you've been around Christianity your whole life. And you're sitting there right now, you heard that, that's maybe the message we preached last week, and you said, man, if I'm saved, I'm never going to lose it. I know I'm going to heaven. And the question comes in your mind, am I really saved? It's a healthy question to ask, right? My goal today is to give you some, just some, there's a lot, of, but some tools and some tests maybe, some ways that you can examine your life and say, am I truly a believer? And what we're going to do is pull those out of 1 John, since that's where he puts that in there. There's a lot of them in there. But um, one question I have for you is this. I think I've made it clear, but biblically, are we even supposed to examine ourselves? Should we as a Christian say, am I saved? Or should we just say this? How many times have you heard this? I've asked Jesus into my heart. I prayed a prayer one time. I went down and... and, uh, Went to an altar, or I said a prayer. Have you heard that from people? And that is their, that's it. Are you saved? Yeah, I said a prayer one time. Okay. Or I was baptized. Should we, as a Christian, even if we know we said a prayer, even if we know that we've committed our lives to God, should we, biblically, examine ourselves to see if we truly are saved? I want to prove it to you. I can tell you yes, but... I like to show people in the Bible one of the places. 2 Corinthians 13 says it. Thirteen verse five. Paul says this. Says, Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates? Paul's telling him, he says, examine yourselves. Prove to yourself. Is that a bad thing? What is the only result? I was, I was thinking, okay, if I were to do that, let's say somebody challenges me. They said, are you really saved? Okay, I'll get back with you. I'm going to go, cha- go examine myself. I'm going to go think about it. I'm going to get back with you. What are the only, there's only two results possible Really, maybe a few others, but there's only two major results possible. One, 
I go examine myself. I find out, yes, I'm saved. I come back to them and say, I know without a doubt I'm saved. Now, what is that? What is the result? I'm full of joy, confidence, peace. What about this? Uh, Eric was talking about you know, how God's worked through him to help him realize I am a believer. The Word of God lives in me. If I know with confidence that I'm saved, what else do I know? I know that I have power over sin. I know that I can love my brother. I know that the Word is going to make sense. I know God is going to be with me. There's so many things that come from that confidence. I know I'm saved. So that's one result. Second result is just as good. I go and examine myself. I come to the conclusion, I'm not saved. You're thinking, well, Brian, that's not a very good conclusion. It's a great conclusion. Because if I'm not saved, what can I now do? I can now get saved. I can now repent, put my faith in Christ. And I'm right there. I go from being here, here's the other guy. He knows he's saved. I know I'm not. To right beside of him. I don't have to slowly get there. The moment I repent, the moment I realize I'm not saved, the moment I repent, and that examination shows me that I need Jesus, and I become born again, there comes the joy. There comes the peace. There comes the confidence. So those are the only two real outcomes. The third one is I could realize I'm not saved and say I don't want nothing to do with it. But if I'm examining myself, wouldn't you say I would probably, the end goal would want to be saved? Amen. (laughs) So I'm going to say that's not an option. Also, if you look at Paul and look through the New Testament, thought hit me. Some of the, the overarching prim- principles that Paul gives through his New Testament, Paul spends a lot of time doing two things. One, trying to convince lost people that they are lost and evil and wretched. Think about it. He says what? Thou art inexcusable, O man. One of the verses. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Through the New Testament, you see Paul when he's preaching. You see even Jesus when they're, when they're speaking. They're saying, you are lost. You need to recognize this. The light needs to come on and show them. What did, we, what did we talk about right here? The law itself shows people that they are in need of a Savior. Paul spends a lot of time doing that. And the other thing he does is trying to convince saints of their holiness. And who they are in Christ. Paul wants to convince them of both things. He wants them to be sure. You are saved. And here's who you are now that you are saved. You are lost. And here's who you are as a lost person. This assurance of who you are is important. And Paul spends a lot of time doing that. So what are some ways that we can go about examining ourselves? You think about this and people say, well, Brian, when you read the Bible and when we study doctrine, what do we always say? We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. It's not of works, right? Ephesians 2, 8, 9 is not of works. Well, this is true. And remember last week I told you what? I said, if you have to work to keep your salvation, you're not saved by faith either, right? You're saved by works. So how do you evaluate something that is not based on works? Getting it, keeping it, is not based on works. That's where this weird verse that throws people for a loop when they go into the whole idea of salvation by faith and works in James comes into play. James handles that and he discusses that. Go to chapter 2 of James. You've got that question, remember. 
I'm saved by faith, not by works. Works don't keep me. I'm kept by grace through faith. So how do I evaluate that? James 2.17 Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But will thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered his son Isaac upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And it goes on to explain this, this, this idea of faith is dead if there's no works there. And it says that, that this, this idea of right here. For as the body, in verse 26, without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Faith is dead. It says, how can we have this concept of salvation by faith alone and still have this concept that James is is teaching that we're justified by faith? How can we have this concept? And this is where this whole idea of evaluating our faith comes into play. What James is referring to is this. You're saved by faith, kept by faith. But this works idea proves what has happened. It's like this. If I was to go and take and uh, I, want, I want to <coughs> rebuild a car, take an old Camaro and rebuild it, and I fix it all up really nice, and I put an old junky engine in it and take off, and I say, man, that's restored just the way it was back when they first built it. This was a muscle car. And you get in it started up and you got like a, a little four-cylinder engine in it and you hit the gas, you're going to be like, yeah, I know what you said, but something ain't right here. Something's missing. But you put a, a real V8 350, tune it up, and you hit the gas and it takes off. What does that engine do? That engine showed you that what you did was right. Your works show you that you have been saved. They don't save you. And it talks here about this justification. A great way to understand this. If you ever, and has anybody ever heard these verses where it says you're justified by faith and then you go and read James and it says you're justified by works and anybody ever get confused or anybody ever have somebody challenge you on that? I, I know I did. When I first heard it, they challenged me. I'm like, well, I don't know. I guess I know I'm saved by faith, so I don't get this. And I went and studied it and asked some people and they said this. This justification here is speaking of justified before people. And the justified by faith is speaking of justified before God. So you're made right before God by faith. Did I hit this? There we go. By faith. You're made right, or yet faith is evident before people by works. It's that outquery. It shows what you've done. So how do we examine our faith? We look at works. That's one of the ways. Go to Matthew. Matthew chapter 5. Verse 21. I'm sorry. Stick in 1 John. Then we'll go to Matthew. Keep your finger over there in Matthew. Just stick in 1 John chapter 1. I'm jumping ahead of myself. 
Let's look at some of these characteristics that 1 John talks about. About, I want to look at myself and say, do I, are some of these works, are some of these things evident in my life that help me to know that there has been a change? What is for, or 2 Corinthians talks about? It says, if you've been born again, you are what? You're a new creation. There's something different about you. If I knew you before you were saved, and I know you after, there should be a difference. You shouldn't be the same person. There should be something different. And how do I evaluate these things? One of these things is this. 1 John 1, 1 1-4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father, and was manifest unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. There's that idea again of your joy being full as a Christian. If you've been set free, if you know you're saved, there's this fullness of joy. And where does it come from? A true believer has this, this fellowship. This, that word fellowship there kind of speaks to an intimate communion. A true believer, if you look at your life, you have intimate communion and fellowship with God and Jesus Christ. You know them, and they know you. You walk with them. Go over there again to Matthew 22 now. Let's look at that person that is truly born again loves God. They love Jesus. They have this. You talk to them, and they want to talk about their Savior. They say, let me tell you about this guy that saved me. Let me tell you about Jesus, what he did for me. Let me tell you about God that is with me. He doesn't leave me. Let me tell you about this morning. I got up. I was talking to Tom this morning, and he says, man, I was reading my Bible, and I was sitting there in the morning, and I was just Oh, I was enjoying my time with God. And all these, his, well, how did you, what he says, all those other things, man, they're just pointless. They're kind of just life. You got to do them. But man, I got to spend some time with God. That's the, that's the terminology of a person that is born again. They desire time. They love Him. They desire fellowship. And, and that word, it means to not just, we think of fellowship like, man, we're going to the basketball game, we're going to hang out. No, this fellowship is an intimate communion. He's talking to me. I'm talking to him. It's, I desire that. We have that. And what does Matthew 22 say? The first and the greatest commandment, verse 36, says what? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Go to John 15. See what another one, another verse that talks about that. The first and greatest commandment. What is it? If we have to sum it all up, love God. Love Him. Have fellowship with Him. Desire with your mind to love Him. With your heart. With your body. With your soul. With your whole being. I love God. I want to be in fellowship with God. John 15 says this, verse 4 and 7. It says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, and ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. 
If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered, and men gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me, and my word abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Abide. What does that mean? You hear that all the time. You hear people preach. You must abide in Christ. Abide in Christ. It means this. Remain connected to Him. Be a part. Be in fellowship. You get up in the morning and wake up and say, remember, what are we going over? Am I saved? Am I born again? So right now in your mind. Because we're not asking. Don't, don't let the devil mess you up and start thinking, now does my wife have fellowship with the Lord? Or does that guy, my co-worker, is he really, or as a parent, is my child really doing... No. Let's start with us. Am I waking up in the morning and saying this, Oh Lord, I need to spend some time with you. I can't make it through today if I don't have some time with you, God. That's a convicting thing to say for myself. Because there are days I wake up and what do I say? I need to get to work. I need to get something done. I've got a list of to-dos that need to get done. I've got to get going. Grab my Bible. God, I'll talk to you maybe at lunch when i got time. Oh, that's terrible. Anytime that ever happens, boy, I've missed it, haven't I? I ran right out the door and God's just sitting there. It's fellowship. I want to spend some time with you. It says, abide in me. Remain intimately connected to Him. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Is God, here's the question. I wrote, after each one of these, I wrote some ways that you can just ask yourself this question. Is God precious to you? See something, you say, oh, it's my Savior. I love Him. Are you connected in deep fellowship? Do you feel like you and God are in fellowship? Like you and your wife. Like you and your, your children. And, and that if they disappeared, if they were taken away, boy, that would hurt. Right? It would, it would be hard. Does He sustain you? You have a hard time. You say, God got me through this. Boy, it was, it was tough. I didn't think I was going to make it. God got me through. When times get tough, when you're getting stressed, life's getting hard, you feel some temptation coming on from a sin that's just nagging you, where do you run to? Do you run to God? Do you abide in Him? Is he precious to you? Have fellowship with him? If you do, remember, what are we going for? We're going, am I a believer? Am I not? If I am, if you do, you can say, man, yes. It's another just, an, it's a way to encourage yourself. This, is, this should be an encouraging message. If, if, I, if, if, God, if I can say, yeah, God is precious. Man, that's just one more thing that helps me to know, yeah, something's been, something's been done in me because I know before I was saved, God was anything but precious to me. He was annoying to me. He was in my way and he just ruined my life from my point of view. But now, he's everything. See the change that happens? It's a proof that you're born again. Go over in chapter 1 to verse 6 and 7 of 1 John. It says this, If we say that we have that fellowship with him, we are abiding in him. If we say we love Him, if we say we're born again, 
and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. A true believer has an obedient heart towards God and his word. It's one of the attributes of a believer. They read God's word. They see something in there that says, you're missing it. Look here. It says, do this, don't do that. It says, be this way, be that way. And I say, oh, I don't really think I want to do that. Then maybe you're not a believer. Because a true believer, when God's word pricks them, when a, when a fellow brother comes to them and says, hey, I've seen something in your life, and let me see, I, I care about you, and I think you might be missing it here. Why don't you go pray and ask God? A true believer says, Man, I'm going to do that because I'm really concerned. Um, one of the things that when we started coming to church here that I loved, I, I told somebody this, and uh, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll build up our pastor hopefully, but anybody that knows Pastor Lindsay for a very long period of time, his number one goal is to honor God. His number one goal is not to be right himself. Does that make sense? And I know that to be true. That speaks volumes of an individual. He wants you, if you've, you've noticed something, to come to him and tell him. That's also very rare in a believer and pastors. Very rare. How dare you come and tell me I've done something wrong. How dare you challenge me. But what does a true believer do? What does a true believer A believer says, I just want to be obedient. That's all I care about is being obedient to what this says. What does this word say? I want to walk in the light. If you notice that I'm veering off into the darkness, help me out. Get me back there. If I'm reading the Bible and I see something that says, Brian, you're missing it really bad here. I don't say, yeah, I know I'm missing it, but boy, I just don't care. Or maybe I care, but I, I, I just I, I can't do it. You know, a true believer says, it doesn't matter if you're going to be shamed. It doesn't matter if people you're going to be embarrassed. It doesn't matter if... You've got to lay yourself open to ridicule. Obedience is what's important. Doing what God says. It may be hard even. It may be, you have to, God may say, you know what, I want you to move somewhere and give up your wonderful career and serve me for the rest of your life. And a true believer would say, oh, that's not going to be easy. If you said so, God, let's go. I'm going to trust in you. I know that you're going to sustain me. I know that you you have the best interest in in mind. You you are guiding me. You are all that matter. I'm going to do what you say. Go to 1 John 3, 4, and 9 and look at that, and we'll look at another. They're all through here. If you want to write a note, you can also put 1 John 2, 3, Chapter 5, verse 2 and 3. But we'll go to 3, verses 4 and 9 to read this. Whoever committed sin transgresseth also the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins. And in him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth has not seen him, neither known him. Little children... Let no man deceive you. 
He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sins is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of Man was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. A true believer does not continue in sin. They are obedient to God. Many people will obliterate this verse and use it to take the Bible and beat people up to a pulp until they can't even stand church, God, or Christians and run away. I know lots of them. These verses are not saying this this concept that once I've truly been born again, once the Holy Spirit truly takes up residence in me, it's impossible for me to sin. It's not what that verse is saying. It may read that way in the English version of the King James Version of the Bible, but if you go and study what that, what that was actually talking about is this. If you keep a practice or a commit continual, ongoing, unrepentant, you just say, I'm going to do it, I don't care, you can't stop me, or they continually, let's say, they get, let's just use an example of they like to eat oranges and oranges is a sin. We'll make it really benign. And they say, I love to eat oranges. And oranges is a sin, and I know it. And the Bible says, thou shalt not eat oranges. But I love oranges. And it's really not that big a deal. I'm just going to eat one. And they eat it, and then they feel bad and say, oh, God, forgive me. And the next day, they're like, I know I shouldn't do it, but boy, I love oranges. And they eat it again. And somebody says, brother, you know, you really need to stop eating oranges. Can I help you, pray for you? What can I do? Why don't you keep me accountable? Okay, yeah, I'll hold you accountable. And the next day, they say, so you've been eating oranges? Yeah, can you please pray for me? I really don't want to do that. Okay, I'll pray for you. See you a week later. Man, I made it three days. I didn't eat any oranges, but then I ate some more oranges again. But, you know, God forgive me. Can you keep praying for me? Is there any repentance? Is there any move towards holiness there? No, it's just an ongoing, you know what, I feel bad about it. I wish I wouldn't have done this, but you know, I'm going to keep doing it. There's no hope that I'm going to stop. It's this practice of, I don't really care. Honestly, I don't really care what God thinks. I care what I want. As a true believer, it's the exact opposite. I don't care what I think or what I want. What does God desire? I live for Him. I surrender to Him and say, God, whatever you want. So the way I worded this question as an examination is this. Do I see habitual sin decreasing in my life? You can't ask the question, do I see sin disappearing from my life? Because we're still in this flesh, right? We're going to struggle. We're going to have difficult times. We're going to have tough days. But do you see these habitual sins? God points something out. He says, well, you need to correct that. You say, okay, I'll do it. Remember, sin isn't just getting away from the stuff we don't do, right? There's also the sin of, what they, what they saw, omission. So God says, he who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it's a sin. God says, you're holding back from me. I've, I've asked for this. A, B, C, you name it. I've asked for this from you. And you say, no, I'm not going to give that to you. You may not be out committing sin. You're living a pretty good life. But what's God's asked for that you've held back? So do you see these habitual sins, these holding back, or even the committing of sins that you're habitually committing? Do you see those? God's sanctifying you, or using that term, setting you apart, making you different, more like Jesus. Do you see, as you're walking, and you're, you look, I look over five days, a year, 
five years, do I look back and say, if I examine my life, am I getting more and more like Christ? Is sin decreasing and holiness increasing? Am I making that progression? That's the sign of a true believer. That's what they look like. 1 John 1, 8 and 10. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. A sign of a true believer is this. It kind of ties in with the last one because it produces a spiritual growth, and that is this. He has a repentant and humble attitude. A true believer is quick to say, yep, you're right, I'm... How's it put? We've heard it said, I'm, I'm way worse than the rumors are in reality, right? The, if you were to truly lay open and examine the sin in my life, it would be way worse than I'm ever going to let on to. If God would pull back them curtains, I heard it put this way. A guy was sharing the gospel downtown and he put it this way. He was talking to a guy and the guy's, no, I'm pretty good. I'm not bad. I'm, I do this. I got, yeah, I've told a few lies. He says, let's say a big, one of those big downtown buildings downtown, he said, say we could get a DVD projector and we could go and compile your life, all your intimate thoughts and details and all the things that are going on when nobody else is around, the thoughts that are going through your mind when you're walking through downtown, all the stuff you've watched when you're in the room by yourself. We're going to take all that, we're going to broadcast it on a big screen here and you're going to stand on stage while we all sit and watch it. How would you like us to do that? Because... All of a sudden, he's not so good anymore, is he? That's what the Bible does. That's what the the Word of God does. And as a believer, we don't need that. We don't need it to be broadcast out. A believer says this, I I need a Savior. I need somebody to forgive me. I need somebody not just to forgive me to enter into salvation, but I need somebody to sustain me. I need somebody to help me overcome that sin. I need somebody to help me grow. I can't do it. I'm hopeless and helpless. You're humble. You're obedient. Remember that psalm we read at the beginning? Let's go back and read it again, thinking about this idea of a humble and obedient heart. Remember, this is King David. uh, He's kind of the man, right? He could have pretty well, and he did, get away with just about whatever he wanted. Would it not for men of God? Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. Listen right here. When I kept silence... My bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into drought of summer. This, is, this right here is the sign of a believer. They've, they've, they've gotten caught in something. They've gotten, they, they know that there's, there's, there's sin in their life. God's trying to work on them. And they're absolutely miserable. They're laying there at night just going, I know I've messed up. Sin is just, I feel terrible that I've sinned against God. 
It's not that I'm going to get caught. It's not that people might find out what I do. I'm not worried about the repercussions of my sin. I'm, I'm distraught because your hand is on me. And I realize I've sinned against you. And it says what in verse 5? I acknowledged my sin unto thee, and my iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. You have a clear, clear understanding of the gospel. Because of this, you're quick to repent and ask forgiveness when sin is made evident in your life. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. It says, My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Remember last week we talked about that idea of an advocate. Why can a true believer be humble? Why can a true believer be repentant? Because they understand the gospel. They understand that Jesus Christ came down, lived on earth, perfect, sinful, sinless, walked this earth as a man, tempted in every way that we were, suffered on the cross for our sins, rose again from the dead and went to heaven, and now He stands pleading on our behalf. As the one who paid the penalty stands before the judge saying, penalty's been paid. We declare them not guilty set free. And a person that has that clear understanding of what the gospel means and knows that they've been delivered, the minute that the, the conviction comes and they reveal to sin, they don't fight it. They don't say, no, I don't. Somebody comes to them and says, you know, brother, I think you might have got caught in sin. What is their first re- response is, oh man, I don't want to sin against God. And I can't do anything to fix it. God, forgive me. What about if they sin against their brother? Same thing, right? I don't care what my brother. I don't care if my brother just slaps me in the face for what I've done. Jesus died for me, and He forgave me. They run quickly to their brother, and they're repentant. They're humble. They say, "Forgive me, please." They understand the scripture that says God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. They they get that. A true believer, when you're caught up in sin, and you got a conviction comes over you is your first response to say, how can I hide this so nobody finds out? Because I don't want nobody to know what I did. Or is your first response to say, oh God, I sinned against you. This is terrible. I could care less what anybody in this world thinks. I think I've shared this story before. I was driving to a Bible study. I'm sure I have before, but I was driving to a Bible study. And at that point in my life, I was probably a Christian for three years or so. And I still had a terrible problem with tobacco. I couldn't kick it. I... I started smoking because somebody told me it was easier to quit smoking than chewing tobacco, and that was a lie. So if you're ever doing either one, don't believe it. it was, next thing I knew, I was smoking and chewing tobacco. So I was like twice as bad. And I, was, I knew God had told me to, to give, give this up. It's like, you've got to stop this. You're, you're just, if nothing else, you're destroying your body that I created so that you could use it for me. What are you doing? Why? And I'm driving to this Bible study, and i got a can of chewing tobacco right here. It's just stupid. I'm driving to a Bible study, doing something I know he told me not to do. That's how powerful sin is, isn't it? And here's, I, I'm very careful to say how you have conversations, interact with God, but it was very impressed upon me, let's put it that way, that he was sitting in that seat with me, saying, you are going to ask those people at the Bible study to pray for you that you don't do that anymore. 
And here I am driving down the interstate thinking, yeah, right, God. I'm going to a Bible study where there's Christians. There's good people there, right? They don't sin. They're going to think I'm a bad person if I ask them to pray for me. I don't want them to know my, you know, I, I, I hid it really good. I'm sure I didn't hide it very good. By the way, if you have sins like that, anything, people know it. You're not hiding it. God is a really good way of revealing it. But I thought it was hidden. Okay? And he's like, you're going to pray. You're going to ask him to pray. And he said this. I'll never forget it. Whether it was my own mind or whatever, but he said, you care more about what those people think about you than what I do. I thought, well, okay. It was pretty well solved. I got no argument. What am I going to do now? I give. Yeah, you're right. No, God. I care about you, but I'm just not going to do what you said right now, right? I cared about I cared about what these people thought about me. And I wasn't willing to say, you know what, I got this sin in my life. I need it out. I'm going to repent. God, forgive me. But I'm not willing to do what he asked. I'm not willing to go and say, hey, could you all pray for me? Help me. So I did. I walked in that Bible study. I threw it down in the middle of the Bible study. And they're all like, well, this is odd. You know? <laughs> well, I'm going to chew some tobacco tonight or what? And it's like, y'all need to pray for me. I can't get over it. You know what? Again, you never want to use experience to back up or to form theology. But that made a wonderful time of prayer. There was a couple other people who had some sins they'd been hiding and decided, hey, let's, you're out in yourself. Let's all out each other, right? And we had a wonderful time praying for one another and openness. If only Christians would truly be open with one another. Imagine the work God could do. Do you understand the gospel? Do you understand what Jesus has done for you? Are you quick to repent and seek forgiveness? Or do you go around worrying about the facade that you've got to keep up? Just ask yourself these questions. First John, I'm just going to, I'm going to read through these as quickly as I can. You don't have to flip and see if you can figure out what another marker of a believer is by reading these. It's pretty neat the way. It's all through First John. Chapter 2, 9 and 11 says, He that saith he is in the light and hateth his brother is not in is in darkness even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness, and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whither he go, because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. Chapter 3, 10 and 11. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. For this is the message that ye heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. 14 and 15, We know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Chapter 4, 7 to 12 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. He that loveth not, knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God towards us, because, he, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us, and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and His love is perfected in us. 
21. And this commandment have we from him, that we who loveth God love his brother also. Chapter 5, 1 and 2. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And every one that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. Anybody got a guess of what a good test of whether or not you are a believer? Do you love your brother? Pastor Lindsay and Tom and I, we were having that discussion this morning about love. He was talking about the different types. The Bible talks about the different types of love. So many times we'll say, I love you. Go to my brother. I love you. Love you, Pat. You're my brother. I love you. And really what I mean is we, I love you like a snicker bar, right? I enjoy being around you. <laughs> that's kind of what we were talking about. So, so many times that's what we mean, isn't it? But what does the Bible say? How should we love one another? Now, I love you. Go to John 13, 35. How do I love you? Or how should I? It says, By this all men shall know that ye are my disciples, if ye love one another. It says, You must love one another. And then back, flip back real quick. 1 John 3, 16. Hereby perceive we the love of God. This was Jesus saying, back in John, saying, they're going to know you, my followers, if you love one another. And how is it? What was he talking about? Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. The one who came to die for us was telling us, you've got to love one another the way I loved you. And how did he love us? He loved us to the point where he says, you are more important than my own life. I'm willing to take my life and give it to you. I would say we probably all fall way short of this true agape love is that word, right? It's the, it's the sacrificial love. It's a love that says, I love you, I care about you the same way I care about me. I'll take myself out and buy myself a steak dinner any day. I'll sacrifice to buy myself a steak dinner. But how often would I buy you a steak dinner? It's kind of a very simple little explanation. But think about how many things and how much sacrifice we will do for the benefit of our own bodies, our own enjoyment, our own pleasure, and yet a brother. He says, if you know a brother is in need, and you don't help him, the love of God does not reside in you. That is a hard verse. I know of a need in a brother's life, and I don't help him with that. The love of God isn't in me. If I am more concerned with myself and my own life, my own pleasure, my own satisfaction than my brother, the love of God is not in me. I am not a Christian. And we think about physical things. Remember a minute ago we were talking about an obedient heart, repentant heart. What if my brother is in sin? How does love react then? Remember Matthew 18? The whole purpose of Matthew 18 is done in love, right? 
For what purpose? The end goal is to restore my brother into fellowship with God. So in reality, going to a brother and saying, you might be missing it here, is a, a huge act of love. I've had people, Christian brothers, come to me and challenge me on things where they thought I missed it. In times I had, and at first you can kind of go, like, oh, I don't know if I like that. But in the end, out of all the people around that saw what was going on, who was the only one that really truly loved me? The one that came to me with the issue. How many times, this is a huge one for me, this, this, this love of the brother. How many times have Christian relationships been destroyed because we thought there was something wrong or we thought something uh, was in the middle of the two? And we didn't just go to them and assume the best and try to talk it out and try to work it out. We just parted ways. I'm done with you. How many people have left a church? And if you really wanted to pin them down on it, they couldn't give you an answer. Why? Where are they at? I don't know. And this one might upset some people, but I don't care. (laughs) How many people leave a church and you never know why or where they are? wait a second, if my child was to wake up one day and wander off and leave the house and never come home, and then I ran into him out on the street, and he's like, hey, Dad, how you been? How's everybody? It's like, who are you? You Don't you love your family? Oh, man, I love my brothers. My brothers are dear to me. Were you going to say goodbye? Were you going to come back and figure out why, where the problem came from? Do you really love your brothers? No, you've proven by your actions. You could care less about your brothers. All you care about is your own personal joy, contentment, and happiness. That's a hard thing to think about, but it happens all the time. Our modern Christian culture is full of that. People just, I'm sick of that. I'm upset. I'm gone. Goodbye. There's a lot of people who really quickly will stand up and claim and take part in a membership ceremony in the church. And those same people will disappear and you don't know where they went. They don't love the brothers. I say this because I've, I've struggled with it. I've been there where it's just like, man, I've got to go. I've been in places and churches. I've got to go. And you know what? I've either talked to the people I had a problem with or we've, we've tried to walk through it. And God has a way, if you walk through it, of working it out. He has a way of, even if you end up having to go, even if you find out, okay, i got to go, can't remain here, you can still leave in love, right? doesn't mean you're bound forever. Someday my child is going to leave my house, right? But he can do it in a loving way. If you just take off, all you've proven is that you could care less about all the people you left behind. Does God's Does your love for God's people mimic His love for you? The way God loved you. Remember what Hebrews said? He will never leave you nor forsake you. Is your love for people a sacrificial love that treats them in the same way you would want to be treated? We throw that around so much. Treat others as you want to be treated. I use that on my kids all the time. Beating on their brother. Like, okay... Would you want him to do that to you? No. We're supposed to treat others as we want to be treated. We know it. But we don't, we don't think about it sometimes. I'm about to make a comment. 
this one, we were talking about this with Tom this morning. Sometimes we think about that physically, but what about this? Do we assume the best of other people's intentions? Because we obviously assume the best of our intentions, right? I wish people would just realize that I meant the best. Why are they thinking bad? They thinking they, they don't assume the best of my intentions. I want people to assume the best of my intentions, right? But so often, I'll assume the worst of another person's intentions. How do we love one another? Do we love the way God loved us? We think well of one another. Do we sacrifice for one another? First John two nineteen is another one. It says they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. You hear this a lot when we talk about, like last week, this idea of eternal security. That's the one that really hangs people up. They say, I know they were in the church. They served. They were a part of the church. I know it. I've even had people tell me, say, I know I was saved. I was walking with God. And then I walked away. I'm done with it. No. If you walked away, if you're not serving God, if you are not saved, all that proves is not that you lost your salvation. What does it prove? It proves that you were never a part of it. That's all it is. A, a pastor friend of mine, he loves to do those alliterations and those stories to make them. And they're great because obviously I remembered it. He says, faith, that is, uh, see I don't remember it. it was, <laughs> I should have wrote it down. Faith, that is, faith that, faith that falls was faulty from the first. I think it was how faith that falls was faulty from the first. It was a bunch of F's. But if it, if it doesn't endure, if your faith isn't enduring, and the only way that you can pass this test is, are you walking with God right now? Have you been walking with God? When you die, we'll know, was it enduring? But up to this point, are you enduring? A faith that falters, faith that falls away, it was never there. It says, they went out. Why did they go out from among them? So that it would be very evident. No. See, these people were among you, and they were pretending to be a part of you. They were living that life. They were acting like they were Christians, but they weren't. And when they walked away, when they d- denied the faith, when they went away, all that did was expose what was true from the very beginning. Is your faith enduring? And everybody that is walking with God at this moment can say, man, I've got at least one on here. I've got. I know this one. I'm walking with God. I'm trusting God. 1 John 3.1. Here's one that gives believers a lot of trouble. All of us. A true believer, I put, stands out in a world of sin. We stick out like a sore thumb in this world. A true believer. 3.1 says, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not because it knew Him not. A true believer, the way they behave, the way they interact, the way they, they live their life, people in the world, sinners, lost people will look at them and just scratch their head and they just look, kind of like, what? Well, they, well, you, somebody, I think it's Dr. Christian, you know, somebody always says, it looks like a cow looking at a new barn door. It's kind of like, that's how they look at us. They, 
they, they look at Christians and say, you're telling me you let that person take advantage of you and you knew they were doing it? Yeah. You're telling me every time you get money, you give it away to a bunch of your church, a bunch of people? You're telling me you, you take a vacation, a vacation away from work, and you go somewhere and serve somebody? You get up on Sunday morning and go to church? The one wonderful day you miss football to go be with people? Are you out of your mind? You don't look... I, I, I've recently... There's a boy that will not play basketball on our basketball team in Atlanta because he said, Brian, Coach Brian is gay. I was like... <laughs> All right, one of the other players told me that and I said... They were laughing about it. They're like, yeah, he thinks you're gay, Brian. I was like, okay, I got to hear this one. How's this? He said, well, you were teaching a lesson, and it was about purity. And the way you taught it was saying you need to learn to control yourself. And just because a pretty girl's around, you don't sit there and stare at her and say, she's pretty. You know. So you don't start staring. And I, start, I used some of those verses about you lust. You've committed adultery in your heart. And was teaching the idea of controlling your eyes, controlling your fleshly desires. That was so foreign to this boy. He said, he don't want to look at girls. He must be gay. And he literally does not want to play basketball for that very... Christianity. Living for God. We think, man, that's stupid. It's not. To a world that all they do is say, I want this, I desire this, I need this, and why not? Why hold back? We look like complete morons. We do. We look, we look stupid. A dad that would stay home and be faithful to one woman. I was in Haiti, up in the mountains one time. Had all my kids on the truck with me. We're driving along, and this woman, we're sitting there talking to her. We pulled off the road and was talking. And I was introducing my kids. And there was a small crowd of people. And talking to the woman, and she was telling me how many kids she had. And I was like, yeah, this one's mine, and this one's mine. And there was a couple left. And I think at the time we still had, I think, six or whatever. I said, yeah, I've got six kids. And she said, all with the same woman? And she was in total shock. She goes, no, 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 no. That, that, you have six kids with one woman. And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm still with her. And she just couldn't comprehend it. She just thought, you're still with your wife. I have six kids and you're here. And you're not going to another one. You don't have multiple ones. In a, in a world of sin, we make no sense at all. Why, why would I not go home after a hard day and just have a drink and kick back and just go to sleep. Just, just, just let it go. Why wouldn't I do that? That's, that's dumb. What's it going to hurt? It's enjoyable. Well, because what's it teaching my kids? Teaching my kids that God's not enough to give me peace. I need a bottle to give me peace. I need a drink to make me acceptable to other people. I look, I look odd to the world. People look at that and say, you're out of your mind. Right? We should stick out. The world doesn't know us. Go to John chapter 15, verse 18 and 19. Jesus, very clear teaching. I love this. Is, 
a verse that was huge in my early Christianity. When I got saved and all the people I was around thought I had totally lost my mind. And they didn't like me. They made fun of me. I was like, this is not fun at all. I don't like this part of it. And I read this verse. It says, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Do you as a Christian get made fun of? Do you suffer, are you, do you, are you, suffer persecution? Do people think you're kind of odd? That's a, that's a testimony to a true faith. So often in Christianity, we want to be as much like the world as we can so that people don't make fun of us. I don't, nobody wants to stick out, do they? Nobody wants to be the goofball. Nobody wants to be the weird guy at work. Nobody wants to be like, man, that guy is just, he's nuts, man. I don't even bother talking to him. Nobody wants to sit over there, eat your lunch all by yourself, you know, while Jerry Springer is on in the lunchroom and you're going, oh. But, you know, sticking out. Nobody wants to be that. Nobody wants to go to their neighbor. And press them to the point where they know they're going to hell. And then have to deal with that afterwards. We want people to like us. Right? But the Bible says the world, its systems, the the sinful world, hates us. Because it hated him. And we are now plucked out of that world. And put into his kingdom, his eternal kingdom. And the world looks at us and says, you are my enemy. I hate you. When the world comes against us, when we're persecuted, when we're thought badly of, when talked about badly, then we should say, I must be doing something right. Right? That should be a confidence builder. And the last one I have, 1 John 4.13. Hereby we know that we dwell in Him. In other words, how do we know that we abide? We are part of Him and He in us. Because He hath given us His Spirit. Whosoever shall confess, in verse 15, that Jesus is the Son of God, dwelleth in Him and He in God. Do we show evidence of an indwelling Holy Spirit? Does, do, when, we examine my, when I examine my life, do I show evidence that the Holy Spirit has taken up residence? What that will do is it will produce all these other things we already talked about. You're going to produce obedience. It's going to produce those things. But go to John 15:8. And let's see what another evidence. An evidence of being born again is having a manifestation of the Holy Spirit indwelling us. And an evidence of the Holy Spirit indwelling us is in John 15. Verse 8 says this, Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit. Okay? So we're thinking along these lines. We have an evidence of the Holy Spirit. And if we have the Holy Spirit, we're a disciple of Jesus and we will bear much fruit. What, what is he talking about? Everybody should already be tracking. Go to Galatians. Chapter 5. And you'll see. Go to verse 16. This I say then, 
Walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the lust, for the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. But if ye be led by the Spirit, ye are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest. So he goes down through here to give you a contradiction. If I want to examine my life, I've got works of the flesh, works of the Spirit. Does the Spirit indwell me? I'm going to show these things. If it doesn't, I'm going to show my fleshly things. So here's the flesh. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Is that because God's going to say, you've committed sin and now I'm taking you out of my family? No, it's because if you do these things, you are manifesting the fact that you are not a part of His family. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh and the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. He makes this comparison. If you ever want to ask yourself, am I showing that the Holy Spirit indwells me? 1 John 4.15 says that there's a confession that Jesus is Lord. That comes with an indwelling of the Holy Spirit. If you have the Holy Spirit, you can then confess Jesus Lord. And if you have the Holy Spirit, these fruits of the Spirit that He just went down, you can look at them as love, joy, peace. What do we say? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those things in my life, when I examine my life, do I see those things in my life? Then I know that the Holy Spirit is evident in my life. And that's another test that I can say. All right. I can, I can know, can have assurance that I'm saved. Again, how do we know that we are saved? The number one test is this. Have I repented? Have I put my faith in Jesus Christ? Have I done that? If I know I've done that, then I need to ask myself, has that taken effect? Am I a new creation? And I can go down through, just read 1 John someday. Sit down and read through 1 John and try to highlight some of those things. And then start going through the rest of the Bible and finding out. There's a lot of scriptures in the Bible that say, if you are my disciples, if you are a Christian, if you are born again, this will be evident in your Remember that in 2 Corinthians it tells us an examination of our life is vital. It's important. We should do this. And it brings joy. It's either going to bring you to the point where you realize I'm not saved and I need to be saved. Joy. Or it's going to bring you to the point where you realize, yes, I truly am saved. Joy. Peace. There's nothing but good can come out of an examination. So, those two people that I talked about, remember, two groups? You're in one of the two. And after hearing this, I'm hoping you'll be able to stop and take a second and say, I'm either in one camp or the other. Either I am not saved. I don't know God. He, I don't abide. I'm not growing in my righteousness. I don't trust in Him. 
He's not precious to me. The Holy Spirit is not evident. I don't have any love. As a matter of fact, I can't stand being around Christians. Right? Does that describe you? Are you confident that you're going to hell? It's, It's just as good to be confident of that as it is you're confident you're going to heaven. Because if you're confident of that, the solution is this. Jesus Christ lived perfect, sinless life on this earth. He died, paid the penalty for your sin. So you didn't have to do it, because you can't. Trust me, we can't do it. Just try for five minutes, you'll prove it, then come back. Can't do it. He paid the penalty. Then he rose again and gave us his righteousness. If we will repent, means say, God, I deserve to go to hell. I should. If you sent me to hell, you would be doing the right thing. And we put our faith only in the fact that Jesus Christ did die for our sins, did raise from the dead, and is now standing in heaven waiting to plead for your case. The moment you put your faith in him, he says, God, forgive me. Forgive me, because I paid the penalty. If that's you, if you don't know that you're saved, matter of fact, if you know now that you're not, don't wait. Please don't wait. But if you are, make a thorough examination. Come to that conclusion. And don't ever, ever, ever again for the rest of your life, ever, let doubt ever creep in. Don't let the pain of this life, the difficulties of this life, ever steal your joy. Because you can know one thing, no matter what, the moment it's all over, it's all over. And it's all good. There's nothing bad from that point on. I remember thinking when I was first saved, uh, I felt that God had called me to go do mission work and ministry. And I said, uh, oh boy, this is, might not be a good thing because you know, I may have to give up some things. It may have to, there may be some difficulties involved in that. And life was pretty good when I got saved. I was starting to head down a pretty good pathway. I remember God impressed on me one thing. He said, the very most, you maybe got 80 years left on this earth. I was thinking of James when he's talking about life's a vapor. The very most you maybe have. The youngest of you in this room might make it another 90 years, maybe 100. In light of eternity, that time span is so small. If you are saved, what could you possibly put up with? What could you possibly do? What could you possibly suffer through that could compare to an eternal glory with God? There's nothing. 